Armageddon, a world whose name is known across the Imperium. Armageddon, a world whose name has become a byword for war and destruction on a massive scale. Armageddon, where the fate of a thousand worlds hangs in the balance. Third time's the charm. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. My name is Nathan Stone and I will be your host today. This episode, we go back to 2000 to look at the Third War for Armageddon summer campaign. A few weeks ago, we did the 2001 Dark Shadows campaign, and I plan on working through the other two somewhat legendary summer campaigns of the early aughts, the Storm of Chaos and the Eye of Terror. Before we get into any of that today, I do have some news and some hobby stuff to share with you. Unfortunately, the first little bit of news isn't a good news section of the podcast. Our home province of Nova Scotia has entered another lockdown. This one is the strictest lockdown that we've seen since last spring around this time. And that's because our COVID cases have shot up again. Unfortunately, Canada has been having a very rough time with this third wave of COVID. Other provinces have been absolutely hammered, and about the only thing that has kept Nova Scotia safe is our remote location and lack of population density. Unfortunately, some of the variants have made their way over here, and we've seen another uptick in cases. And what that means is, well, everything has shut down again. Thankfully, this podcast is recorded every week in my walk-in closet, so there's no real chance there of any kind of disruptions if you're listening to the podcast weekly. However, our YouTube channel and our battle reports will have to wait out this latest lockdown. We won't be able to do anything in the way of battle reports, probably for at least the next four weeks. But as a bit of a silver lining, we do have some individual videos that we're working on. I am working on more of my Lost Units of Warhammer, the second episode of which is going to be out this week, and it's all about Orc Boar Boys, so check that one out. I'm not sure what day yet that one's coming out. As it turns out, making YouTube videos is a lot more time-consuming, despite their short length, than doing this podcast and editing it is. So I'm not really sure when that one's coming out, but it will be this week. That is my goal. Scott is also going to start doing some individual videos as well. And as per listener request, he is going to be looking at the army books of Warhammer Fantasy, particularly the 8th edition army books, and reviewing them from the perspective of the Orchard Edition, and talking about how some of the changes in the Orchard Edition make certain units better, and how the armies play in Orchard Edition, and kind of what to expect if you're just getting into it. As always, you can find the Orchard Edition rules on our Facebook page, the Warhammer Orchard. It is a neat blend of 6th edition and 8th edition that is fun and playable, but still kind of in its infancy, 
so there's always changes and tweaks and things that the guys are making with it. In lighter news, next week will be our anniversary episode. And that one is going to be tons of fun. I've got Scott coming back. I've got GJ coming back. And we are going to just play some game show games. We're going to probably do a little bit more quizzing, have some drinks, and we're going to just have a good time. It's going to be a very relaxed episode. Not a ton of theme or anything like that. Just something for us to get together, blow off some steam, and celebrate a year of podcasting. So please check that one out. It's going to be tons of fun, and we're going to have a lot of stuff that you can play along with. In hobby news, I have been working on, and it feels like forever now, I feel like I've been telling you guys about these units for the past like five or six weeks, but I've been working on my Imperial Guard Gene Stealer Chaos Cult and my Beastman, but I have finally finished off the first squad of Guardsmen, and I love the way that they look. You'll be able to see pictures of that up on the Warhammer Orchard Facebook page. And I'm about 60 to 70% done the Beastmen. They are going to be a very good looking unit. I'm very excited to make a banner for my Beastmen. Right now I've got the banner sheet from the 4th Ed Chaos Army book, which includes a lot of really cool banners. I'm not sure though if I want to do one of those or if I just want to make my own banner. We'll see which one wins. I guess the other thing I'm thinking about is, do I need to make some banners for my Gene Stealer Chaos Imperial Guard squads? Because, I mean, there's some really cool banner possibilities for them. You can stick all kinds of things. You can do the classic Gene Stealer icon on them. You can do some chaos symbols. You can really play with them. They're a really funky color, too. They're kind of purple, black, and red are my three main colors for these guys. So I could really have some fun doing that. On the other hand... And I love banners. I think they're the coolest thing on the tabletop. I think every unit should have a banner, regardless of what that unit is. If I could get away with doing banners for my modern Tyranids, I might even think about doing that. Though that might be a little bit too far to push that whole theme. My issue with the Imperial Guard is that even playing them in 2nd edition, as these guards will probably do for most of their playing career... You still need a lot of guardsmen and a lot of guard squads, and every time I do a banner, that is two plus hours extra work on top of the work that I have put into the squad. So I'm not really sure which way to go on that one. I know that I wouldn't regret it if I did it, but I also know that I have a trillion things to do and to get painted, so for now I may pass on it. Not really sure, though. What do you guys think on banners? I think banners should be on everything. Tanks, infantry, in fantasy it should be on absolutely everything. I just really like banners, I guess. That's it for news and hobby. And before I move on to our main topic today, I just want to say a big thank you to our new patrons for April. Our Patreon is the place where you'll find all of our bonus content, we do a bonus episode a month, plus whatever other stuff I can think of. It's a great way to support the show if you like what we do. And I'm just blown away by the support that we've already gotten. Our Patreon is non-tiered, so you're free to donate as much or as little as you'd like. And with any donation, you will get access to our bonus content, which I have to tell you is a pretty good value. 
There is a bonus episode as well coming out this week that actually ties into this episode and ties into our last episode on the Dark Shadows summer campaign. In that bonus episode, I am going to be ranking the top five Games Workshop campaigns of all time. So if you're feeling particularly nostalgic for those summers past, this is one that you're not going to want to miss. All right, ladies and gentlemen, what I want you to do for me is to cast your minds back to that sunny summer of 2000. A different era now, some 21 years ago, and we're going to talk about the first summer campaign of the 2000s that would set the mold for how Games Workshop handled these year in and year out. It was an incredible experience for me as a newly minted 13-year-old. The summer of 2000 actually saw my family move cross-country. We moved from Ontario to Nova Scotia. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about two important issues of White Dwarf that pertained to this campaign. And I have memories of my last day in Ontario. We're doing all of this packing last minute, filling up this giant U-Haul and taking our whole lives across country. And I am very helpfully spending the morning, instead of perhaps having a, a little walk around to make sure everything's packed, or just reminiscing about the years spent in our little apartment in Oakville, no, I'm not doing any of that. I have my head buried in White Dwarf number 248 that kicked off the Armageddon campaign. It's funny, when I think back to those last few days in Oakville, I mostly remember that White Dwarf. It was a very good one. So this, is, this campaign has a lot of nostalgic memories for me, which, if you're a normal listener to this show, is probably not going to surprise you since seemingly everything has a lot of good nostalgic memories for me. This one, though, is a little bit special, even when taking all of that into account. Let's start off with a quick and dirty history of Armageddon. Armageddon is a linchpin of a world for the Imperium. It is a major supplier of arms, equipment, and supplies to many other systems throughout the Imperium. And because of this, it is a world with some clout, and a long and bloody history. We're going to start off with something that has recently been added to the history of Armageddon and was added to the fluff by Black Library, I believe in their Beast series, which talks about a enormous orc war during the early years after the Horus Heresy. It turns out that Armageddon is actually the world of Ulanor, which is important in the lore of the Heresy, very important world taken from the orcs, and it was thought destroyed by the Mechanicum, as Ulanor was the capital world of the Beast, who was this huge Primarch-sized orc. What the Mechanicum actually did was teleport the planet, which is weird. I, I, I don't know how they did that. I haven't read the Beast book series. It, it's a Space Marine series. It's not really my thing. But this is the fluff that, that we have added to Armageddon in, the, in recent times. Ulanor was transported to the Armageddon system, or what would become the Armageddon system. And that is why orcs are instinctively drawn to Armageddon. 
is that it was an important capital and part of their orky culture. As far as fluff goes, it's a little bizarre and it's a little weird. Not my favorite thing, but really unimportant. It hadn't even come up in the fluff yet by this point, and I just wanted to share it with you for completeness. It has absolutely nothing to do with our campaign. This summer campaign focused on the Third War for Armageddon, and to have a third war, you have to have two before that. The first war for Armageddon, and perhaps the least known, occurred in 444 millennia 41, where cultists worshipping the chaos god Korn broke out in rebellion during a warp storm that was taking place in the system. This warp storm, of course, divulges a huge space hulk into the system that is carrying none other than the demon Primarch Angron and a whole bunch of Chaos Space Marines and Corn Berserkers. The planet was thrown into war, of course, because the forces of Chaos invaded and was only saved by the intervention of the Grey Knights, who banished Angron from the material world. This may also be the darkest chapter in Armageddon's history, as the Grey Knights, after the planet was resecured, rounded up the entirety of the population, several billions of people, sterilized them and sent them to work camps, and brought in new citizens to repopulate the planet who would have no knowledge of what had occurred there. This brought the Grey Knights into conflict with the Space Wolves, who didn't like that sort of thing taking place, and the two sides are still kind of upset with each other to the current era. The second war for Armageddon is where things get interesting. This was in 941 of Millennia 41, so 57 years before the third war for Armageddon, and this one is all about war boss Gazgul. Gazgul shows up with his orcs, and Armageddon at this point is in the hands of the overlord Hermann von Strab, who was completely unprepared for the attack as he was an ineffective ruler. Von Strab is someone that we will see come back as well in the fluff, but he is uh, your classic aristocrat's aristocrat in that he has very little interest in running a planet or doing anything that would benefit the people of the planet, and is more interested in just being the guy, hanging out with his aristocrat buddies. Things go very poorly for the Imperial forces in the Second War for Armageddon, until a commissar by the name of Yarek steps up and takes control of the defense of Hades' hive. The heroic defense that he organizes ends up bleeding Gazgul's armies, to the point where Gazgul himself has to intervene, and it buys time for the Imperial defenders to rally, and buys time for Imperial reinforcements to show up, and ultimately is the deciding factor in the war. This would be the conflict where Yarek would become a legend amongst the citizens of the Imperium, as well as where he got his trademark orc claw that he tore from an orc knob after losing his own arm. He is, I think, one of the better Imperial Guard special characters, certainly the most interesting, I think. To give you a sense of Armageddon, the planet itself is somewhat simpler in geography than our own, 
There are three continents, one around the North Pole, one around the South Pole, and one kind of supercontinent in the middle. This continent is divided into two sections, Armageddon Prime and Armageddon Secundus. And between the two of them, there is an equatorial jungle. Armageddon is home to many billions of humans. There are eight hives located on Armageddon, three in Armageddon Prime, Hive Tempestora, Hive Volcanus, and Death Mire, and five in Armageddon Secundus, Hive Asheron, Hive Tartarus, Hive Hell's Reach, and Hive Infernus. The northern continent is known as the Fire Wastes, and the lower continent is known as the Deadlands. Not much here other than mines and water plants. In the middle of the equatorial jungle is Cerbera Base. This is where the Orc Hunter regiments of Imperial Guard are based out of, and it is their job to fight the Orcs in a guerrilla warfare style through the equatorial jungle. The Orcs have been lodged in the equatorial jungle since the Second War for Armageddon, after Gazgul's defeat, the surviving orcs fled there and have been a nuisance ever since. Most of the land at Armageddon is described as ash wastes and desert. Really, only the equatorial jungle has any proper greenery to it. The lower ocean is also known as the Tempest Ocean, and the northern ocean is known as the Boiling Sea, with the largest ocean to the west of the main continent, known as the Ocean of Fury. What I hope you're getting from this is that Armageddon really isn't a nice place. The average temperature is noted as 60 degrees Celsius, which is far beyond what a normal human is going to be able to endure, which is why people live in vast hive cities, and you're not going to find any small towns or villages in Armageddon. Now that we're a little bit more familiar with the planet itself, let's pop in to Codex Armageddon. This came out with the summer campaign in 2000. It is of the pamphlet hammer style. What I mean by this is the early codexes of third edition were very small, they were very light, and they were very cheap, which was quite nice. But they could be a little bit light on fluff and rules, Everything was pretty simplified. This is the first major supplement of 3rd edition, and it really shows you how the tone has changed for Warhammer 40,000 between 2nd and 3rd edition. Everything is much more grimdark than what you would have seen were this campaign to come out in 2nd ed, say. And 2nd ed actually did have its own little Armageddon campaign, that was kind of meant for beginners to show you the ropes of how the game played. Patrick and I actually might play that someday on the War Games Orchard YouTube channel as a introduction to second edition. When we might do that, who can say at this point? But it is on our list of things to do. So this codex has some really interesting things. It starts you off with the history of Armageddon and then moves into the Third Armageddon War. The Third Armageddon War is divided into four phases. Of course, it doesn't cover the whole war because this is going to be decided by players from all over the world. Then we get into the forces. 
Included in this book is The Orc Cult of Speed, The Black Templars, The Salamanders, and The Armageddon Steel Legion. They also, in passing, reference things like the Planetary Defense Force and give you some ideas on other things, but the ones with actual rules are the ones that I have just listed. This is one of my main complaints with what Games Workshop does, and it just goes to show you that they've been doing this for so many years now. We get two Space Marine chapters, as well as an Imperial Guard Regiment, but for the antagonists, we only get one, which is the Orc Cult of Speed, which is cool. But I would love to see a little bit more parity, a little bit more equality in how Games Workshop does these things. I know Space Marines make the money, but this should have really been about the Orcs. At least to a greater extent, three of the four forces in this book are Imperial, and that makes me a little bit sad. It finishes off with some gaming ideas, which are always nice. I don't know how many people would take Games Workshop's advice, because they always put gaming ideas in all of their supplements and different ways to play. And I always do wonder if a lot of people embraced that, or if that was just something that got overlooked. We're going to start our look at this codex with the Third Armageddon War section. As I said, this is divided into four phases. Phase 1 is opening moves. So this tells the story of Imperial forces first encountering Gazgul's massive orc wall. And a lot of this story talks about the Imperial Navy and their first sorties with the giant orc fleet that had arrived in the Armageddon subsector. One of the tragedies of Armageddon was it was still rebuilding from Gazgul's first invasion. 57 years prior, when this second force arrived. One of the things that doesn't get a lot of play, because everything centers around Armageddon, is that Gazgul's forces didn't just invade the one planet, they actually invaded two dozen Imperial worlds in the span of 24 hours. Phase 2 is called Return of the Beast which is actually a little prescient considering the later fluff that would get added to Armageddon. I like that a whole lot. And this section tells us of the defense of Armageddon by the Imperial Navy. And Gazgul's fleet here is in excess of 2,000 ships and at least 12 space hulks. The local Imperial Navy forces know that there's no way that they can stop Gazgul from reaching Armageddon, they're really just trying to delay, trying to do as much damage as possible, and trying to keep their ships operational for as long as possible to try and bait out more orcs and buy time for Imperial reinforcements. This is also the first time in Imperial history where the Imperium encounters orc rocks. Orc rocks are one of Gazgul's new toys to play with when he comes back to Armageddon. They are hollowed-out asteroids with a ton of guns and other things strapped onto them that the orcs have outfitted as crewed spacecrafts. They, as well as the orc teleporta technology, were Gazgul's aces in the hole in this invasion. As what he would do in Stage 3 was the rocks acted as spacecraft, but then also landing craft, and then also fortresses, the rocks flung themselves into the planet, and the ones that survived became mobile fortresses that disgorged 
thousands of orcs onto Armageddon. This is actually a really cool plot point, I think, because what it does is it does kind of harken back to those sillier days, and orcs should always have a little bit of comic relief with them, but it allowed the orcs to have fortresses and be on the defensive in this campaign. So if you wanted to fight with the orcs on the defensive, what you could do is have your your buddy has his space marines, you have your orcs, and you could put something on the table to represent perhaps the entry to this orc rock or some of the defenses of the rock. It gave you a lot of modeling opportunity as well as narrative opportunity that wasn't just, oh, the orcs have captured this thing and the imperial forces are trying to take it back. This could be a whole campaign around these rocks, either pushing out from them or trying to push the orcs back into the rock. A very cool part of the story. And Imperial forces at the time, they, they didn't really know what these rocks were for or were going to do. But the rocks were super hard to destroy because, again, they're just giant asteroids. And they were at the tail of the orc force. So whenever the Imperial Navy tried some kind of flanking maneuver, these rocks would be there and they were this defensive line that was very hard to penetrate. Even before Armageddon, Gazgul hadn't been idle in the time between this invasion and his earlier defeat. He had fought a series of campaigns that allowed him to perfect his orky tactics and figure out how it was that he was going to defeat the Imperium. His first defeat on Armageddon, it seems like, was him really testing their defenses for this second go-around. I'm sure he would have been happier if he had won the first time, but for an orc, I mean, a second go at a giant apocalyptic battle has to be almost preferable to just one. So back to our story, the Imperial Navy is trying everything that they can do, but they can't really stop or even appreciably slow down this big of an orc invasion. It was the largest number of space hulks to ever assail a world of the Imperium in its 10,000 year history, and that's not even counting the rest of the orc fleet, which was absolutely massive. Armageddon has quite a few orbital defenses as well as an orbital dock known as St. Jowan's Dock. The orcs bombarded it and invaded it a bunch of times, and they didn't really worry about capturing it so much as much as just keeping it occupied, and the Imperial forces of the Death Watch actually ended up coming in to try and cleanse that and had to kind of fight the orcs to a stalemate. Phase 3 is Ground Zero. This is the invasion of the planet the Imperial Navy has bought a little bit of time, but not a ton of time, for Armageddon. However, luckily there are a lot of Space Marine chapters nearby, and Armageddon itself is a well-armed and well-equipped world. There were Space Marines from over 20 chapters, as well as numerous Imperial Guard regiments all dug in and awaiting, and Commissar Yarrick had been put in overall command of the Imperial forces, as they just wanted to skip that whole part of the second war for Armageddon where they didn't have him in charge and kept losing all of the time. So, reasonable response by the Imperium in this case. After a three-day orbital battle in which the orcs systematically destroyed the defenses of Armageddon, the first landings of orc troops on the planet started to commence. They came down through a myriad of different ways, 
the orc rocks that we talked about, some classic landers, as well as orc teleporter technology. And they landed pretty much everywhere, outside all of the major hives and in the deserts themselves. The orcs came down and the planet itself was split into about a dozen different battlegrounds. This is a little bit of clever writing by Games Workshop because the way they organized this campaign was each major country had a battle zone that they were fighting over. So, for example, results from the UK would be for a certain hive, say Hive Asheron, whereas results from the US would be for Hive Tempestora. And though that's not the actual examples that they were, this was all listed in White Dwarf where you were battling from, and then, and I'm a little bit sour about this, actually, because I feel like Canada has always been a fairly strong supporter of Games Workshop in terms of we've had quite a few stores, Games Workshop has done quite well here, but we didn't get our own battle zone. I mean, Italy got one, and I mean, no offense, Italy, but I feel like we've probably put more money in. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but... There was a rest of the world section as well, which Canada fell into, as well as a lot of other countries, obviously. And that was Hades Hive. And your results could only affect the outcome of your particular battle zone, which I really like as a mechanic for this summer campaign. Because that way, say, if a huge country like the United States if they go fully Imperium, everyone's playing Space Marines against one poor Orc player and he's just losing every game, that's not going to skew the whole campaign. Along with about a billion Orcs that landed on the planet, it also saw the return of Hermann von Straub out of exile. He had fled the planet after the second War for Armageddon when it was probably clear that he was going to be removed probably by force. And he and his followers emerged at Asheron Hive. The hive itself fell to the orcs in those first days around the landings without warning. Von Strab had managed to smuggle orc saboteur teams as well as zone teams in and basically destroy the defenses of the hive from within, which allowed the orcs to capture it. He took over the hive as its new overlord and announced that he was once again going to rule Armageddon, as that was his divine right. This was somewhat insane, considering he had thrown his lot in with the orcs and Gazgul. I can just really see that working out for him if the orcs had taken over Armageddon. I'm sure Gazgul would have had a lot of patience for this guy. But it did have a really interesting effect as far as the narrative of the games were concerned, because if you wanted to, and this is Games Workshop being clever again, you could have, say, an Imperial Guard force fighting alongside the Orcs as Hermann von Straub's bodyguard. You could do all sorts of fun narrative scenarios about maybe capturing him or eliminating him, you know, sending a kill team into Hive Asheron, uh, having Orcs and humans fighting together. There's a lot here that narratively works quite well. I'll take this moment also, because I've been going on all sorts of tangents this episode, to mention the website. Every good summer campaign had a website. The first of them was this Armageddon website. It was really cool. 
if you ever had an opportunity to browse around, you could see information on all the hives, on all the battle zones, on how it was going, the war between the orcs and the humans. It was a very cool site. One of the things they had was actually a message from Hermann von Straub that you could listen to that was kind of him monologuing about how he was returned and that all loyal citizens should should rally to him and that the orcs were liberators. And it was really good. It was very, very good. It's maybe the kind of thing that you could see a little bit in the Wayback Machine nowadays if you were to use it and try and look. I haven't tried, so... I'm just going off of my 21-year-old memories at this point, but I loved that website. I spent a lot of time on that website that summer. This phase of the campaign also talks about the other hives and which ones were immediately surrounded, which ones fell, and which ones were able to drive off that first attack. And things were already a little bit perilous for the Imperium here. There's a couple hives that were in it tough. But this really just set up these battle zones for us. One of the nice narrative touches that they also add here is that when Gazgul invades again, he doesn't even fight in Hades Hive. He launches asteroids at it from space just to send a message that this time is going to be different. I like that. And finally, we get to stage four, which is entitled Total War and tells you where things are at the beginning of when you will be fighting this campaign to decide Armageddon. It talks about the orc rocks and their landings, and the fight back against those, the orc cults of speed, and uh, fights between gargants and titans. It really tries to play up this idea of this war on all fronts by all means. In a smaller text box below this, we're introduced to some of the dramatis persona of the Armageddon campaign in Gazgul, of course, and Orchimedes. Orchimedes is really cool. We only really see him in silhouette, and I think we're a little bit more familiar with Gazgul. But I'm going to share both of their little blurbs here. They're nice little synopses of the characters. We'll go with Gazgul first. Gazgul is the most dangerous of orc leaders, one with both drive and ability in abundance. A serious head injury in his youth awoke visions from the orc gods which have led him on a bloody path of conquest. Unmatched in recent history, he has returned to Armageddon after decades of planning and testing imperial defenses, and has succeeded in unifying dozens of orc tribes and even contingents from several orc empires. If Armageddon falls, Gazgul could unify orcs across the entire segmentum into an unstoppable war which might threaten Earth itself. Orchimedes Imperial scholars have so far only been able to speculate about the presence in warlord Gazgul's retinue of the technical genius whom they have dubbed Orchimedes. Although the individual has not been identified, his handiwork has been reported many times on Armageddon. The teleportas used on the orc's fortresses, the giant submersibles used at Hell's Reach and Tempestora, the deadly upgun gargants in Gazgul's horde, all of these indicate the presence of an alien mechanic of terrifying ability one who is being actively sought by agents of the Officio Assassinorium. Two fun characters for the orcs, Gazgul, of course, a legendary character. Orchimedes would never see a model or anything really a whole lot more than this in the fluff, but I love the idea of a mad orc genius. I like the fact that the Imperial forces have dubbed him Orchimedes, which is a really silly name for an orc, but I hope he adopts it. 
Further down, we get two of the Imperial characters, Commissar Yarrick and Admiral Powell. Admiral Powell was the admiral in charge of the Imperial fleet in that phase one, where they were trying to delay the orcs. Powell was the second son of the Imperial commander, Lawston, and as a result, his career in the Imperial Navy was virtually guaranteed. Because he was raised to command them from an early age, he has a natural authority which few dare to challenge. He has proven himself in countless campaigns and is renowned for the careful marshalling of resources at his disposal. As well as being patient and meticulous, it was these qualities which led to him being promoted to his prestigious position in command of the fleet defense of Armageddon. Like Orchimedes, not a character that we will see really continue on beyond this campaign. And finally, Commissar Yarrick. Commissar Yarrick had already enjoyed a long and distinguished career when Gazgul first invaded Armageddon. After being banished to Hades Hive for contradicting Von Strab's orders, he masterminded a brilliant defense which stopped the orcs in their tracks. Although badly wounded, Yarrick survived the battle. He retired for a short while, but returned to active duty once it was clear that Gazgul was still alive. For the last 40 years, he has been relentless in his pursuit of his old foe and has now returned to Armageddon to command the Imperial Defense of the planet. I love just how ancient Yarrick is. For a basically unaugmented human, I assume that he has been given juvenile treatments. Those are the drugs that slow down the aging process for humans in the 40k lore. If you're not some kind of transhuman like a space marine, you probably need juvenile to not die from old age. Uh, as Yarrick has not died from old age, despite being ancient. Our next section is about fighting in the campaign and using the new army lists provided. It gives us a breakdown of the army lists and the codexes you required. So each of these armies are supplements for a larger codex. This was the style of 3rd edition, and it's funny that it's actually come around again in 9th edition, at least for Space Marines. So Speed Freaks used Codex Orcs, Black Templars used Codex Space Marines, Salamanders also used Codex Space Marines, and Steel Legion used Imperial Guard. Everything what you would expect there. Now let's look at some of the lists themselves. We're not going to go through everything, but we're just going to get an overview of what was available to these armies, what made them special, and what made them cool. First up is the Orc Cult of Speed. The Speed Freaks. This is a style of army that... I think always had devotees amongst orc players, even before it was codified by Games Workshop. The Cult of Speed is a really cool idea, and I'm glad that they put it in here. Most of it is special rules, and the most important special rule, or arguably the most important special rule for the Speed Freaks, was called Mount Up. All infantry in a Speed Freak's force must be deployed at the start of the battle aboard a truck, battle wagon, or looted vehicle with transport capacity. During a game, any mob of Speed Freak's orcs is allowed to mount up on any transport vehicle they can fit on board. They are not restricted to only using the transport they were deployed in at the start of the game. This was an important rule to enforce the theme of the army, which was orcs go fast on vehicles. And I'm glad that they improved it here. They also had special rules around mobbing up. Mobbing up was a huge mechanic for orcs back in 3rd edition. It allowed two damaged squads to combine to make one bigger batter squad. 
and it had some jank with the Speed Freak list because the Speed Freak list tended to be a little bit more elite because you were buying all of these vehicles and it mattered for things like, oh, can they mount this wagon if they mob up? We're not going to go through it today, but just know it was there and uh, they thought about this when making this list. Another one of their rules was fast response, and this one is really neat as well. It allowed them to start rolling for reserves a turn earlier than usual. So for standard scenarios, you could roll for your Speed Freak reserves entering play on turn one, which was really neat. I like the idea that they just get there so fast that, oh, hey, our reserves arrived pretty much as soon as we did. The Speed Freaks had a number of vehicle upgrades that they could take. There was a couple that were in Codex Orcs, and then there was a couple of ones that were unique. One of my favorites is the force field. And you could have a force field on your truck or other vehicle. Mech boys are adept at constructing force field generators to protect open-top vehicles. The vehicle still counts as being open-topped, but no longer suffers the plus one modifier to its damage rolls. If the vehicle was a fast type before, it loses its ability due to the power drained by the generators. A bit of a trade-off to be sure. I like the fact that it just takes away the open-topped rule for your vehicles, which to be fair is, is quite useful. I think I'd still rather them be fast though than have that if I was making a speed freak army. And if you're going to make a speed freak army, you were limited to the following things. You could take a war boss, a big mech, a knobs warbike mob, storm boys, ard boys, scar boys, Warbike Squadron, War Buggies slash War Tracks, Truck Boys, 0 to 1 Tank Busters, 0 to 1 Burna Boys, Death Copter Squadron, 0 to 1 Fighter Bombers Raid, Warbike Outriders, a Battle Wagon, a Looted Vehicle, and a Gun Truck. Most of these things are in Codex Orcs, but there's a few unique units as well. The unique unit for the headquarters was the Knobs Warbike Mob. These guys are expensive at 45 points per model, but they are knobs on warbikes, so that means toughness 5, 3 attacks, and 2 wounds. They could be given whatever they wanted from the orc armory, with the exception of mega armor. They were really cool, really killy, really fast, but you did pay a premium for them. In this army, warbike squadrons were, of course, troops, and they would be your bread and butter for this army, as well as truck boys, I suppose. Warbike Outriders were really cool. They were the fast attack replacement for the regular Warbikes. And the big difference between them was that they were scouts. So they could make, after both sides had deployed, a free 2d6 move to get really up in the opponent's face. 35 points per model. Again, this is a very expensive orc army. You also had Death Copta Squadrons, making, I believe, its first appearance since Gorkamorka. The Death Copta, also 35 points. You could take one to three of them. They weren't dissimilar from bikes, to be honest. Except that their unit was technically a jet bike unit. So you had all of the benefits with that, such as moving over terrain and all the great things that come with flying. Much like war bikes, they were also equipped with twin-linked big shooters. So if you thought of them as just war bikes with more freedom of movement, you're not far off here. The Fight Obama raid was another one that was unique to the Cult of Speed. This was not a model, but you could buy it. And what you were buying was some Fight Obamas coming by and strafing the battlefield. 
and it gave you basically a preliminary barrage against the enemy force, which was part of a scenario in the Third Ed rulebook, but normally you didn't get it in other scenarios, but this would allow you to get it. It was 30 points. There was a rare time in Warhammer 40k where you could purchase things that weren't models and weren't war gear. And they were things like this. They were things like orbital strikes, fight a bomber raids, anything that you can think of that would be off-table support, basically. Of course, where orcs are involved, things have to be fun and random. So if you rolled a 1 on a d6 before the preliminary barrage, the fighter bombers get a bit over-enthusiastic and strafe everything in the area, orcs included. And you had to roll for the preliminary barrage as normal, but you had to roll for every eligible unit on the tabletop, friend or foe. So yeah, fun, fun orc stuff. The last of these units is the gun truck, which was a heavy support unit. And again, heavy in quotation marks here. This was a front side rear armored 10 open topped vehicle would die to a stiff breeze, but you could mount some fun stuff on it, including a zap gun, a cannon or a lobus, any of the big gun weapons and uh, have a little bit of mobile fire support there. The Orc Speed Freak list is an iconic one for Orcs. People have been running variations of this list for years. Before this list existed and after it went away in later editions, and a lot of the units in this list would end up being things that you could choose in later editions. They got added to the Orc roster, Specifically things like knobs on war bikes, very popular, especially in 5th edition, where they were just absolutely obscene. Now we get into the bad guys. I speak, of course, of the Space Marines and the Imperial Forces. The first one is the Black Templars. This is the Black Templars' introduction for most players. It certainly was for me. And they're a very cool chapter. As a younger player, I have had several goes at making various Black Templars armies. I've never found that they look quite as good as they looked in the pictures, probably because I wasn't as good of a painter, and also because black is somewhat tricky to paint sometimes if you don't know a good technique for it, and uh, I didn't. So the Black Templars were in a very young stage of their development, but they had a lot here that any Black Templars fan would recognize from later editions. They had a lot of special rules. They had Righteous Zeal, which was really interesting and maybe not always effective if you were playing the strategic game, but instead of having to fall back, you kind of fell forward towards enemy units. If you had to take a morale check and failed it, yeah, instead of running backwards, they would run forwards because they just got so upset at the enemy killing some of their buddies that they wanted to get to grips with them even faster. You could take purity seals. Man, I remember when purity seals were just an option. And uh, I guess this is the era. Purity seals, you would buy them for the neophytes, which are the scouts of the Black Templars. And it basically gave them the righteous zeal rule because they didn't have it natively. They had a rule for mixed armor because you had these initiate squads of space marines and scouts. And it just told you what to do in those situations. You had vows. And vows were kind of the, the thing for Black Templars here. You would only have one vow. And you would choose it before the mission. 
and there was, accept any challenge, no matter the odds. And this one could be really bad for you, as any unit in the Black Templar's army must assault the enemy if they are in range at the start of the assault phase, and must make an advance move if they win a combat, as long as they would normally be allowed to do so. In close combat, Black Templars always hit on a roll of 3+, regardless of their opponent's weapon skill. It's a mixed bag, that one. It basically makes you frenzied, so enjoy being... new corn berserkers, I guess. Hitting on 3 is nice, though I find that Space Marines hit enough things on 3s. I wouldn't probably take that one in 3rd. There was Uphold the Honor of the Emperor, which made it so that you could not count cover-saving throws when being assaulted. However, you did gain a 6-plus invulnerable saving throw just all the time. That's pretty cool. And for all of these vows, neophytes generally didn't get them. So this was only your space marines and up, not your new guys. There was Suffer Not the Unclean to Live. When rolling to wound in close combat, Black Templars add plus 1 to their dice roll. However, a roll of 1 always fails. The Black Templars need to summon their holy strength, so strike at minus one to their initiative. That's a cool one. Plus one to wound is a big deal, more so than plus one to hit. We're always hitting on threes. This is one that I would be tempted to. I mean, initiative three marines, ooh, it's a little tough, but for this campaign, where you're up against orcs and there are initiative two, really not much of a hindrance for you. Finally, be pure in mind, body, and soul. This gave you a, a free 2d6 move for all of your affected units in the first movement phase, as long as there was an enemy Psyker on the table. You could act normally that first turn, including moving again. It was a really good way to get your guys up the table. However, if your enemy didn't have a Psyker, as a lot of armies just didn't bother in early 3rd edition then you're really not getting anything out of this. The Black Templar's army list is mostly the Space Marine army list. There's only a couple of things here that is particularly different. They have the Emperor's Champion, and the Emperor's Champion was a compulsory unit. You must take it if you are running Black Templars. And this is a theme that we'll see continue on to later editions as well. Armageddon really laid the groundwork for so many rules that came afterwards. It's, it's stunning, honestly. The Emperor's Champion, very cool. He's a duelist. Uh, he's got some interesting options with the Black Sword, where he can use it as a power weapon with plus one strength. And if he used it with two hands, it counted as being a power fist, so he could threaten just about anything. The next character was the Marshal and the High Marshal. These were your Space Marine heroes in all but name. In troops, you had the Black Templar's squad. The reason why you had separate troops for this is because they could take the neophytes as well. So you could have between 5 and 10 initiates, which were just space marines, but they were space marines that could take bolt pistols and close combat weapons or bolters. And they could add up to 5 neophytes. So you could have these squads of 15 space marines running around. It was a really cool site. I've always liked space marine horde armies. And, and you can really only ever do that with Black Templar, but I think it looks really cool on the battlefield. In Fast Attack, they got their own assault squads. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm having trouble figuring out how these are different than the normal Space Marine assault squads. I think it may be just some of their options are a little bit different. 
It's that they don't have a sergeant and that up to two models could have a special close combat weapon like a power fist. So that's a little bit different. There was the Black Templar's Bike Squadron, which is the same basic idea as your normal Space Marine Bike Squadron, except you could add in the Neophyte Bikers or the Scout Bikers as they would be called normally. Again, a cool idea, and you could do these fun Space Marine Horde shenanigans. The star of the show is the Land Raider Crusader. This is its introduction. It was a hybrid kit with the newly released Land Raider at the time, with a bunch of metal bits to make it into the Crusader. And it was really, for a long time, the iconic Black Templars vehicle. This is what you expected to see, one, maybe two, sometimes even three of them in a list. And they could hold up to 15 Space Marines. So you could put that big old Black Templar squad in there and just throw that thing up the table. It was very, very cool, and it really defined this era of the Black Templars. Next up is everyone's favorite green marines, the Salamanders. The Salamanders were really cool because this was a first founding chapter that just really hadn't been explored in the earlier era. They were always there in the lore, but before this, and really in second edition, you were thinking about the big four, right? You were thinking about Ultramarines, Blood Angels, Dark Angels, and Space Wolves. And as third edition came out, and they moved to focus on some of these other chapters, some of these second founding and beyond, stuff like the Black Templars, and they brought us the Salamanders. And the Salamanders were always a really fun chapter for people who like actual good guys. Space Marines who actually care about the people that they're saving. They played as the real hero chapter of Armageddon. So Salamanders didn't get a whole lot here. They got less than the Black Templars for sure. One of their big things is the rule Sturdy. This rule coming from the high gravity world of Nocturne, in which they inhabit, and it is a nerf for them. It reduces all of their initiative by one, so your basic Space Marine has initiative three. They also deduct one inch from any advance or fallback moves that they make. These are not fast Space Marines, and they're not as good in close combat. They do get some buffs. The buffs, though, aren't don't necessarily make them better fighters or better at shooting. It makes them better at attritional warfare, which is kind of a different idea for... Space Marines of this era, they had never give up, which meant that you could force a extra turn at the end of the battle if you didn't like how things ended. This has come up a few times throughout the history of Warhammer 40,000. Notably, Imperial Fists and Iron Warriors could do it for a little while. They also had the Self-Reliant Rule. In 3rd edition, if your squad was reduced to a single model, you would have to take an all-on-your-own test. And it was a leadership test every turn because, oh look, all of my friends are dead, maybe I want to be away from this place. Salamanders didn't have to take that. So you can kind of see how Games Workshop was theming them to be this army that, against all odds, they would hold to the last man, doing the right thing, fighting the good fight. And I think that spoke to a lot of people who were looking for a good guy Space Marine faction in this early 3rd edition era. Where Salamanders shine, and where they shine to this day, is in their war gear. 
they had the special salamander's mantle item that you could give to a character, especially if you were making Tushan the uh, chapter master of the salamanders. It was a good thing to give to him. But army-wide, they had a special rule regarding artificier armor and weapons. They have some of the greatest tech marines in the Adeptus Astartes, and to represent that, master-crafted weapons were cheaper for salamanders. They cost 10 points rather than 15 points, and artificier armor may be purchased for non-independent characters, such as apothecaries and veteran sergeants. Again, this is an army that's kind of strange because it has some major downsides, and then its upsides are things that you wouldn't necessarily first think of, but could really help you win games on objectives. They weren't super killy space marines, but that was kind of the point, and I liked that. And the Salamanders don't have a special HQ in this supplement, but they do get their own psychic power called Fury of the Salamander. For anyone who's played 2nd Edition, you will recognize that, and it's not dissimilar from the way that it worked in 2nd Edition. This is kind of a beam power that shoots out in a line up to 3d6 inches. Any model which crosses that line takes a single strength 5 hit with normal saving throws allowed. If you take any casualties from it, you have to check for morale. It's alright, I guess. Psychic powers weren't very good in early 3rd edition, just to how it was. The Salamanders do have a special Terminator unit. What makes this different from the regular Terminator squad is that you could mix and match between Stormbolter and Powerfist or Thunderhammer Storm Shields, which was unique. Also, they were slightly cheaper at 37 points per model, I think because of that initiative 3. So if you wanted to play Terminators in 3rd edition, like an absolute mad person because Terminators were terrible in 3rd edition, you would probably want to take Salamander Terminators. They had their own tactical squads, and the thing with their tactical squads is they had some different options, including the multi-melta as a heavy weapon. You could go melta very heavy in a salamander's army, which again plays to theme. Very cool. In the fast attacks section, you have the salamander assault squad. This is your bog standard assault squad, except with initiative three, so worse, but same points value, and they are zero to one, which again makes sense because salamanders, they're not fast. This isn't how they fight wars. Finally, we have the bike squadron. Again, this is just differences in war gear. Not super exciting. Of the two lists, the Black Templars certainly got more love than the Salamanders. The Salamanders, though, I think got a very unique play style. I think of the two of them, the Black Templars certainly more fun. But I can see why the Salamanders got a big boost in popularity from this supplement. There was a lot of people like me. As a kid, I had never really heard of them until this point. And yeah, I thought their lore was really cool. Finally, we have the Armageddon Steel Legions. And these guys are very cool. They are the gas mask wearing, great coat having, doing most of the work while the Space Marines get the glory troopers. And the first thing that it tells you about the Armageddon Steel Legion is what codexes to use for making your own Armageddon Imperial Guard. So for example, for infantry companies, you want to use the bog standard codex Imperial Guard. 
However, if you're looking to make Armageddon Prime jungle veterans, who I thought were in this supplement for the longest time, I misremembered it. They're actually in White Dwarf, and it just kind of gives you their lore and some thoughts on converting units and that kind of thing. But they aren't in this book other than to say you want to use Codex Catechin's Death World's veteran list for them, which makes perfect sense, honestly. I don't know why you would need those special rules. I do think they got certain rules, though, in White Dwarf about taking orky weapons like choppas and shooters and stuff. And if you're making a Steel Legion mechanized infantry, you would use this supplement, Codex Armageddon, because this is where you're going to find the Steel Legion mechanized infantry list. This is the most common regiment raised on Armageddon. The reason that they do this is you can't really have infantry regiments that aren't mechanized on Armageddon. The world is hateful outside of the hives, and you don't want to be out there. You want to be in an armored vehicle, because if you get stuck outside of one, you're going to die. It's just how it is. It is basically a death world out there. So unlike the other lists that we covered, there's no special units for the Steel Legion. You're using Codex Imperial Guard pretty much the whole way, except that it gives you a little bit of guidance on that. All units in a Steel Legion mechanized infantry company must either be vehicle units or have a Chimera transport vehicle. Units that don't normally have the option of taking a Chimera, such as Heavy Weapons Team, must do so at 70 points, plus the cost of any upgrades taken. This makes sense, and it's functional. I would have liked a little bit more meat on the Steel Legion's rules. The Steel Legion is so good. People these days are big into Death Corps of Krieg and fine, whatever. I'm Steel Legion all the way. I think they look gorgeous. I think the models are better, and I think the fluff is better as well. What's neat, though, is that they've changed the Chimera special rules. They've basically given the Chimera an update in this book from Codex Imperial Guard. And it just goes into greater detail about how the Chimera can be used, how the top hatch can be used, the access ramp at the back, the fact that it is amphibious. They used a lot of paper over the years to tell us that the Chimera was an amphibious vehicle. I don't know if it ever came up. I would have loved to have done some kind of sweet landing scenario where you have these Chimeras and they're, they start in the water and you're, you're doing a D-Day landing sort of scenario with them. I think that would be really cool. I don't know if anyone ever used those amphibious rules. That is the book. We get a little bit more fluff on the disposition of forces, and that's it. This was Pamphlet Hammer, so there's not as much as you might expect in some of these supplements. But you know what? For what it was, this did a good job of prepping you for the campaign, telling you the basics of the story, and getting you into the action if you wanted to use one of these themed lists. I think where it falls down as a supplement is that all of the lore that it tells you here were was also in the corresponding White Dwarfs that came out around the same time. So if you were reading it more for lore, it's kind of of limited value. If you also had those White Dwarfs, I'm just a little disappointed at what is here for the Orcs. I know, of course, Imperial factions are always going to be more popular, but this was really their chance to shine. And as cool as the Cult of Speed was, it would have been so nice to just throw a couple more clans in there. Give us some basic rules like you gave the Steel Legion for 
Goff's, for example, maybe Gasgill's bodyguard, you know, maybe he can take more Scarboys than usual. Maybe he's got different limits, just just something. And it wasn't really here, unfortunately, for the orcs. But all in all, this supplement is lots of fun. If you get your hands on it, either a soft copy or a hard copy, it'll keep you entertained for a little while and uh, certainly make you feel nostalgic. It, it has for me 100%. Before we leave Codex Armageddon, I do want to share with you a little scene that is near the beginning of the book. And I like this as a framing mechanic when you're going into the campaign. General Titus stood upon the observation platform above the bridge of his Leviathan command vehicle. Here, 60 feet above the ash dunes, the wind was fierce and his protective cap whipped around him. He took a pair of magnoculars from an aide and observed the massive force arrayed under his command. The strategic displays of the command center could not convey the sheer majesty of the army. To his left strode five massive warlord battle titans of the Iron Skull's legion, kill pennants fluttering in the wind, and in front of them four warhound scout titans stalked across the orange-red ash wastes. Around the feet of the huge titans advanced three full regiments of the Armageddon Steel Legion. A dozen companies of Lehman Russ tanks, dwarfed by the huge war engines that blotted out the faint light of Armageddon, plowed forwards to their objective, the bridges over the river Styges, trailing a massive dust cloud in their wake. Gigantic Baneblade and Shadow Sword super-heavy tanks lumbered to his right, a heavily armored reserve ready to move forward and unleash awesome firepower of their massed battle cannons and volcano cannons. All around were the men and vehicles of the Steel Legion, Chimera transports beyond counting, 30,000 men riding inside, accompanied by more tanks and batteries of artillery. An adjutant directed the general's gaze to the south, where the orcs were said to be mustering after making planetfall. Adjusting the focus of his magnoculars, Titus gave a gasp of disbelief. There were the orcs. The shapes of a dozen gargants jutted up from the undulating ash wastes, a swarm of smaller vehicles surrounding them. But it was not this that had given Titus such a shock. For miles in every direction around the gargants, the ash desert was green, a sea of orcs so massive that the mind refused to acknowledge the possibility. Titus examined his forces once more, his heart in his throat. Emperor's mercy, he whispered to himself. I pray I have enough men to face that. A great little opening scene to show you the scope of the battle for Armageddon. One that I like a whole lot. I wish we had gotten a little bit more. These summer campaigns were brilliant, but they were so fleeting, right? You had a month or two to do all of this fun gaming in. And then they were kind of over, and it was always a bit of a letdown, no matter how good the campaign was. I didn't get to participate as much as I would have liked, because I was moving that summer, and I was going to a place where Warhammer wasn't really a thing. When we moved to Nova Scotia, it, we moved first to a very rural community. And even if there had been an active Warhammer community, and maybe there was, I certainly didn't know about it. But I did get a couple of fun little games in, just like 500,000 points before we moved. In the White Dwarves of the Summer, they had forms you could cut out, fill out, and send to Games Workshop. And you would detail your battle, who won, who lost, and it would be counted. I think I did that a couple of times. And I'm pretty sure I mailed them. 
which is really funny because I, I think you could also do it on the website much easier, but such was the times. A lot of additional content for this campaign was in White Dwarf. Things like the orc fighters of the equatorial jungle and other little stories and snippets and rules and things showed up over the White Dwarves of this summer. One thing that I want to highlight to you, though, and one of the great things about our modern era is that you can find pretty much all of the White Dwarfs online if you so choose. And one of the things I was thinking of when I was designing this episode in my mind was, for me, this whole campaign came down to the two-part White Dwarf battle report called Warzone Tempestora. Tempestora was actually the battle zone for Games Workshop HQ in Nottingham. And so they, they kind of had their own battle zone to fight over. They still couldn't give Canada one, apparently. And it was a two-part multi-battle battle report in White Dwarf. And it might be my favorite battle report of all time. I'm sure it is for 40k. Not sure if it compares to some of the absolute classics from fantasy, but oh boy, it's close. If, if not, it might even just be my favorite. It was for a couple of reasons. Firstly, this was kind of apocalypse before apocalypse existed. It was a very large battle. And the main table was part of the ruined hive. And it included some very fun scenery pieces, like a large bridge on the left side. There was ruins kind of in the center. And then in the right-hand side, there was a tank factory. And a lot of the battle was in this tank factory. And so that became part of like a compartmentalized battle within a battle. But there was also other battles going on that would affect this main battle. So the main one was the war across the tank factory. But then there was also the smash the big guns scenario, which another couple players were playing. And it was Imperial Guard Basilisks raining down fire onto the other map, the main map. And an orc force had been sent to, to stop them. There was another one called Flank March, where two armies, a Cult of Speed and a White Scars army, were both trying to reinforce the Hive, so they had to kind of break through each other. And then the last one was Silence the Hulk. And this was kind of the opposite of the Big Guns one, so a Orc Space Hulk was also bombarding the table, and a Black Templar's force had to go up there and uh, sabotage the Space Hulk, and the Orcs had to try and stop them, so... What we had was four games and incredible early 2000 miniatures. And a lot of the uh, a lot of the classic white dwarf guys are in this. And the reason why I, I talk about this so much is nothing grabbed me and pulled me into the narrative quite like this battle report. It was over two issues. It was absolutely massive. What they did was they wrote it all as a narrative instead of saying, oh, in this first turn, we moved up or that kind of thing. They told it like a story. And they gave you like timestamps. So it was this incredible story that was illustrated by these battles. Really, really cool. Over two issues of White Dwarf, 248 and 249. These issues have some of the best content I think White Dwarf had during the era. If you have time, if you want to find these, check them out. It's a brilliant battle report. One of the best of all time stories that kind of weave their way in and out of each other it's just it's so so good another thing that you'll find if you're flipping through these old white dwarfs 248 and 249 this was 
when 6th edition fantasy started to become a thing. So you'll actually see the previews for that, the the teasers and everything. And it's it's a really cool uh, little blast from the past. I should stop waxing nostalgic at some point here, but I do have a really special place in my heart for this campaign. It really kicked off that golden age of Games Workshop summer campaigns that burned so brightly, but so briefly. The lasting legacy of Armageddon is actually fairly large. We talked about in the last episode that I did on the Dark Shadows campaign that it didn't really have much of a legacy beyond itself. It was largely forgotten in the later era. This wasn't to be the case for Armageddon. The things that were introduced here, in terms of both Orc and Imperial, stayed around and became hugely popular parts of the lore and the game itself. And I think if we're judging a campaign based on sheer success and what it meant to the game going forward, and even to this day, Armageddon might be the summer campaign with the biggest legacy. And that's really cool. It's something that is special. Games Workshop has a nasty habit of retconning their own lore when it isn't convenient for them anymore. But they never really had to do that with this Armageddon War. And I think for a first swing at a really big summer campaign like this, it was a huge success. It wasn't perfect. There wasn't a whole lot to do if you didn't play Imperial or Orcs. Of course, the campaign made sure that, oh yes, you can use any force, right? There's ways that you could tie them into the narrative. Chaos Space Marines could find their way to the planet Dark Eldar raiding for slaves. Eldar coming to mess with the orcs because it's important to them that this planet not fall because of some far-reaching scheme. You could do just about any kind of mental gymnastics you needed to rationalize having any army here. But it never really rang true when you were playing it. It just didn't, it didn't feel like an Armageddon game is what I'm saying, unless it was Orcs and Imperium. And you know what? Maybe that's fine. Because when I think about later campaigns, like something like the Fall of Medusa 5, where Games Workshop tried to shoe in every faction at the time, and it just was so milk toast. It was a nothing campaign. It just, you know, it didn't feel real. It felt like an arena that they had dropped everyone into and said, okay, smash toys together. Whereas Armageddon felt like a coherent story. So maybe I won't hold that against it. It's very hard to work in all of the disparate factions of Warhammer into a single campaign. And maybe it was best off that they didn't try. And maybe that's why its legacy is so much more intact than something like the Eye of Terror campaign, which was much bigger scope, but was eventually retconned and forgotten. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It has been a, a nostalgic little romp for me. I hope you'll join us next week for our anniversary show. It's going to be lots of fun, lots of games, and a return to Warhammer Fantasy, because we never go more than a week. <laughs> without Warhammer Fantasy. It's too long. If I don't talk about Warhammer Fantasy within seven days, I will actually die. So yeah, there's that. Until next time, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the War Games Orchard. 
If you like the show, why not support us on Patreon? Our Patreon is where you will find our bonus content, and is totally non-tiered, so for whatever donation you'd like, you can have access to all of our bonus content. If Patreon's not your thing, then consider giving us a 5-star rating on your podcast platform of choice and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch with us, check out what's new with the War Games Orchard, or just say hello, you can find us on Facebook. Our community page is the Warhammer Orchard, and while you're there, you can follow our regular page, the War Games Orchard. Outside of Facebook, you can get a hold of us by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. Never before has the Orc Menace been greater. Gazgul has achieved what we thought impossible. He has united hundreds of warbands with but a single goal, the total and utter destruction of humanity in the Armageddon Sector. Arrayed against this barbaric horde is the greatest force of arms the Imperium has mustered since the time of Lord Solar Macarius. The fate of hundreds of worlds will be decided on the blood-soaked ash dunes of Armageddon, and we cannot afford to fail.